Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Today, we have a special Thanksgiving edition of the podcast that is co-released and co-produced uh, between the Tech Dirt Podcast and the Neoliberal Podcast, which, if you don't listen to it, is a really great podcast that always has uh, particularly interesting guests that challenge a lot of my assumptions and, and really make me think. In this podcast, the host of the Neoliberal Podcast, Jeremiah Johnson, interviews me about everything that's been happening with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And while we thought about releasing this after Thanksgiving, uh, given how quickly new things keep happening with Elon and Twitter, we figured it was best to just get this out as quickly as possible. And thus you get a special podcast released the day before Thanksgiving. So uh, please enjoy this co-production of TechTurt and the Neoliberal Podcast. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the blatant paint and trolls. Document the way that they aim to take control. Scrutinize them, do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get if you exist on social media, it has been like the single biggest topic that has uh, has been dominating everyone uh, on social media for the last few weeks. Elon Musk has purchased Twitter, and things have been interesting. Mike Masnick, <laughs> that's a great way to say it. Uh, Mike Masnick is at Tech Dirt, and he's one of a couple sources that I've been following to um, to try to understand this whole thing. Um, highly recommend going to check out his writing over at Tech Dirt. Mike writes about obviously the tech industry in general. Uh, he writes about the business of the tech industry. He writes about policy. He writes about things like privacy, content moderation, and j just from all sorts of different angles and. Today, we're going to try to break down a few things. Number one, just what is happening? Things are happening really fast. Number two, what is Elon Musk's goal here? What is he trying to accomplish? Can he accomplish that? And if he's failing, what are the specific ways that he's failing? And, and that might be a long list. So, Mike, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sorry for laughing in the intro. <laughs> I mean, you know, the whole thing has been kind of comedic. It's like yeah. the, the one Elon tweet that I'll start us off with was he tweeted something. Somebody was like, you know, everything's breaking down. And he said, but at least it's not boring. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and, and he's also tweeted the meme of uh, from Gladiator of are you not entertained, you know, there's there seems like this uh, focus on on making Twitter as entertaining as possible and and seeming to think that that will solve all of the other issues that that uh, that one Twitter may have had before and two that he might be exacerbating. So I, I want to start by just again complimenting you one more time. We'll get that out of the way. I think Mike's writing is is fantastic on this. Genuinely encourage you to go listen to the podcast if you like. This podcast, if you enjoy it, then, you know, go check out the Tech Dirt podcast uh, if you're listening on the neoliberal feed. But I do think there's one or two areas where we might disagree just a little, and I'm excited to get into that, too. I guess we'll just start with the – I want to set some descriptions here. It, it seems to me pretty clear Elon Musk did not actually want to buy Twitter because he spent a lot of time and lawyers' money trying not to buy Twitter. But then he kind of ended up having to purchase it because that's how – contracts work. <laughs> and and now he's like the dog that's caught the car. 
And so I'm actually confused as a result of this whole process. He wanted to buy it. He tried to get out of buying it. He was forced to buy it. Now he's got it. I actually don't really know what his goals are. I, you know, is he trying to make money? Is he, is he trying to fulfill some sort of cultural vision? What's your read on like, what does Elon Musk actually desire to accomplish? Yeah, to be honest, I I have no idea. And 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 trying to read the tea leaves and lots of people have different ideas and theories and and I don't think anyone really knows and and to be honest, I'm not even sure that Elon knows. You know, I I think your description of of, you know, he wanted to buy it and and signed a binding contract which he appeared to regret almost immediately and then spent months trying to get out of it very very weakly and and only agreed to to consummating the deal after it became very very clear that he was absolutely going to lose in court and and, and that it, it may turn out the the end of the court fight may have been even worse that he just decided he needed to to go through with the purchase um and and then in terms of like you know he he talks I wouldn't say a good game, but he he talks about all of these ideas that he has, but many of the ideas are contradictory. He talk he talks a loud game. Yes, he he talks a lot. He talks a a, a voluble game. Yes, and and um, you know, but but you know, some of what he says is is contradictory. Some of what he says makes no sense. Some of what he says are things that other people have explored and studied and understood, you know, why things certain things work and certain things don't work. And he seems entirely uninterested in learning about any of that and completely um you know incurious to 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 finding out what other people have spent you know, two decades or more learning about online communities. And he seems to have certain assumptions and, and a very strong belief in his own, you know, what he would refer to as first principles thinking um, that, that he has some sort of vision. The fact that it, it is somewhat incomprehensible and does not seem to make sense to, to people who have spent a lot of time thinking about these things is just, you know, is is interesting to to watch. I mean, I uh, have always been a believer that you know I I think new people can come along with new views and have new and interesting ideas, and I think that's important. And I think that's often how innovation takes place: is that you know the old way of thinking is proven wrong, and somebody has a brilliant new idea and comes in and 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 you know shows people a better way. That's that's kind of like the core to innovation. That's the kinds of things that I think everybody should should celebrate. But but it does not appear that Elon is doing that. It appears that he is running through the playbook that lots of other sites have tried and in some ways doing it worse and with a lot less understanding and a lot less thought about what he's doing and discovering all of the same mistakes but again, because of the way he structured it, you know, he, he's making those mistakes even worse. And and so I don't I don't understand what the end game could possibly be. 
because you know and everybody has these theories and none of them make sense to me so i i can't yeah. i can't answer your question it seems to me like there's a, a version of like kremlinology you know when, when <laughs> back in the days when the soviet union existed and the kremlin would put out these right. statements right for, for anybody we have a lot of zoomers who listen to this podcast what kremlinology is <laughs> yeah. is like the soviet union would put out this statement about how the the grain harvest was stupendous this year. Right. And and somebody would look at that and say, okay, stupendous means it was actually good. If they had said record-breaking, that would mean that actually people are starving. Right. Um, and there's like these weird signals where nobody can actually tell what's going on in the Kremlin, in, in the Soviet Union. And so you have to interpret things. And there's like this pocket industry of people who like pour over statements. And it seems like we have Elonology now, where people are like <laughs> trying to understand what's in the inscrutable brain. Yeah. Um, but- but beyond that, so let's let's just assume that he's trying to do some mix of he wants to make some money, and then he also has like this vision for Twitter at the same time. He's got personal beliefs and and values that he wants to uphold of of some kind. Right. It seems like I, I want to make another analogy here because you talk about content moderation a lot and the difficulties yeah. of that, and I, I want to as somebody who has a long history of content moderating on the internet, I want to get into that. But it seems like he is kind of learning the hard way, as you said. There's an analogy here where, like, when people talk about crypto, there's this fun joke where, like, oh, crypto learns one scandal at a time, why <laughs> financial regulations exist. And it yeah. seems like Elon is learning one disaster at a time, like, why content moderation exists. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's that's accurate. And I think, you know, we've seen this pattern play out before on, on a much smaller scale, which is that, you know, every new, not every, but but there have been a lot of new attempts at social media that have shown up in the past 15 years that show up with some sort of claim about how content moderation is bad and we are the free speech platform and we, you know, uh, we're, we're bringing free speech back or, or something. It, it's else. an easy way to fight the culture war on the internet. It, exactly. It's, it's, it's cheap. It's cheap talk. It, exactly. And. You know, there are arguments to be made that, you know, different social media does content moderation badly. I, I think, you know, most of most of, uh, you know, social media does d does a bad job of it in all sorts of ways. And there's lots to criticize there. But this idea that the solution to it is like, you know, much less moderation just hasn't been proven true. And we see it over and over again. I mean, my, my favorite example of this, I think... I mean, I could, there's, there's, there are so many examples, but you know, Parler, when Parler launched, they had this very weird, you know, semi nonsensical statement on their website that they were going to only moderate based on the first amendment and the FCC, um, which is very strange for a few reasons, namely that like the FCC only has authority over broadcast airwaves uh, to, to moderate content. And even then it's very, very limited. It has nothing to do with the internet. So there's no way in which the FCC's, uh, you know, mandate and authority applies to Parler. So it was a very strange statement, uh, you know, in the first place. Also, you know, the First Amendment only applies in the U.S. And outside the U.S. there are different rules and and then like immediately within like a week of parlor getting big they made this announcement like new rules like you can no longer post photos of feces <laughs> and you can no longer have like i forget exactly <laughs> what it was but it was like usernames 
that um, the inalienable right to yeah, post exactly. pictures of feces. That's that's what we're protecting here. <laughs> so it, it's you know it, it's it, it sounds good and it, it sounds like if you if you believe in in free speech and um you know and and I am a a huge free speech supporter to to say that but but free speech on a private platform is different than free speech when you're talking about you know the what the government can stop you from saying and i think it's really really important and but really really difficult for a lot of people to comprehend the difference and the importance of the the concept and the principle of free speech extends to the fact that on private property the private property owner has the right to say you can't say that here on my property that's actually a free speech right that's the right of association and the right of not associating with someone and so many of the efforts around like trying to force different websites to to not moderate in the way that they are moderating are really attacks on that right of association and the right of not association and what every website is finding and i've i've gone a little bit away from your question but i'm bringing it back around <laughs> is that every website discovers that there are external pressures on why you want your website to be a place that people want to go to. And that could be the users, first of all, because if your website is a complete cesspool of uh, harassment, abuse, uh, whatever, people are not going to want to be there. And advertisers are not going to want to be there. And if your business model is advertising, you need the advertisers to feel safe and comfortable with advertising on your platform as well. And there are all sorts of other issues that come up as well. And the idea that you can, you know, that the solution to any of this is magically to do just less moderation is, is simply not realistic in part because whenever anyone says that, and this, this is what happened with parlor in particular is that it becomes a blaring sign you know that that said that you know screams to people like come here and be a complete jerk on my platform. Yeah, there's a there's a great quote from I think it was Slate Star Codex that said you know if you take a principled stand against witch hunts, you are going to get you know uh, I don't know like a community that consists of seven principled libertarians <laughs> and then ten thousand witches. <laughs> exactly. um, and and that's just the way that the world works sometimes and. And like I, I have my own war stories here, and and I, I think content moderation is going to be a through line to this episode because sure. there, there's a great post that I love that you wrote uh, earlier this month, you know, called Elon, let me help you speed run <laughs> the content moderation learning curve, and it kind of goes through this like level one, we're this free speech platform, anything goes, and then the different things, oh crap, people are posting like child exploitative images, you know, oh crap, let's uh. Uh, people are posting copyrighted stuff, full movies. We got to do something about that and just on and on and hate speech and like all the different levels of things that you've got to deal with. And just my experience with this com comes primarily from the uh, moderating the neoliberal subreddit, uh -huh. which is it's a pretty active sub forum of, of Reddit. It gets about 12,000 comments a day, I think. Yeah. So we've got a team of like dozens of moderators, all volunteers who just volunteer to do this and just it the idea of moderating anything bigger than that i think <laughs> i would rather die than than like try to moderate twitter for instance i just yeah. 
it, it legitimately sounds to me like the worst job in the world, <laughs> having been in charge of like 12,000 comments a day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, you referred to the, that I've written about how content moderation is 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 really, really difficult. And 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 I actually I, I like to correct people when they say that. I don't think it's really, really difficult. I think it is impossible to do well at scale. Uh, and and I think that's really important to understand because all of the discussions when you talk about it being difficult suggest that there is like if you just work hard enough you'll get it right and, and the fact is you're never going to get it right right there there are all different competing forces there are all different competing interpretations there are all different areas you know like gray areas where somebody has to make a judgment call uh, and and people are just naturally going to disagree you you have the the simple fact that you know, in most cases, the people who are moderated, whose comments are removed or, or you know, hidden or whatever it might be, they're going to be mad because they think that they were they were you know, righteously fighting whatever fight they were fighting, and and you might think that they were harassing someone, and that's always a judgment call. You know, and and I, I you know, one of the incredible things is you know, so we we've, we've been working on uh uh a game to, to teach people, uh, to, to basically turn people into a trust and safety team. Uh, and you get to sit down at a, at a table and, um, and be a trust and safety team and go through all of the experiences, uh, because I think it's actually really valuable. The, the experience that you've had with that subreddit is a really valuable experience in just understanding the impossibility of this. And the fact that, people will get mad at you no matter what choice you make and that there oh, are yeah. all of these difficulties. Oh, pe people get so – we had to set up a separate subreddit just to handle complaints about <laughs> moderators. Right. And I think we have legitimately one of the best moderated subreddits anywhere on Reddit. Yeah. They work incredibly hard. They put cool features in. We have customized bots that respond to people. when Like it's all really cool. But we had to set up like meta neoliberal just to handle complaints <laughs> because like it's just um, – like I, I don't even know, man. It's – you get the weirdest, like we, there's a rule, no racism, for instance, right. but then, you know, so that's easy. Okay. But then, okay, well, what if this one Asian person is being racist to another Asian person? Is that, is right. what do we do there? What if a Mexican is being like bigoted about Canadians? Is that actual racism? What if, you know, a Serbian and a Croat are fighting? And right. let me tell you, like, I know more about like obscure ethnic tension yeah. than I have ever wanted to know as a result of moderating an international forum. Like, yeah. and eventually we ended up with so many like rules and sub rules and like exceptions to rules that we ended up just uh, eliminating the entire rule and saying, don't be a bigot. It's right. entire, it's entirely up to our personal discretion, whether or not you're being a bigot. If you don't like it, just leave. Cause there's no way to codify this. Like, right. you know, and, and that's, that's the thing. And, and that actually gets to, to, to a few different issues. Um, which is, is this idea that a lot of people believe who have never done any content moderation is like, just write clear rules and enforce them evenly. Like I hear that all the time. The problem is the uneven or unfair <laughs> enforcement of things. And and it's like the reality is, is that every situation is different. Every situation has context that, you know, like people will post like two examples, like, well, how come this one was banned, but this one wasn't? There's all different reasons for it. There might be additional context. There may be different things. There, there may be, you know, one was reported and one wasn't, you know, there are all different reasons why that might happen. And 
everyone who thinks that like, oh, you can just write a clear set of rules has, has never done any of this. You know, I, they, I, they have I, never tried to argue with someone. Who, yes. I call it like rules lawyering, you know, <laughs> yes. where they will say, you know, just and the, the thing is, they always have more time for it than you do. You're a yes. moderator. You've got 10,000 things to get through and they are willing to spend the next six hours <laughs> doing like essay length breakdowns of their three word post, you yeah. know, that I don't know, man, it's. I, I'm in agreement with you. I'm just venting at this point. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I get it. You know, one thing I do recommend to people is that Radiolab did an episode, I forget what it was called, where they like embedded with Facebook uh, and, and their content moderation team. And I think they did a really, really good job of highlighting this, where they actually go through like, you know, and I don't remember the exact examples that were used in the podcast, but they talk about like, oh, okay. We came across this bad content, therefore we wrote a rule because we we need a policy. You can't just do it on a whim because then then you're not going to get any kind of you know uh, even enforcement. Uh, and so they would write a rule, and then they would suddenly come up with like an area where it's like, does that violate the rule? And it would be this sort of like gray area. And they'd be like, oh, you know, the rule's not clear enough. So we need to have these subparts to the rules, exactly what you described, you know, with the, with the racism subreddit example. And, and then, so then they would, you know, write this, you know, subsection to the rule. And then there would be another gray area that's like, oh, does that, does that apply? And you'd have to write another one. And, and sooner or later, these simple rules that you had at the beginning turn into like, you know, 200 page rule books with, with sub clauses and all of this stuff. And, you know, and you need, you know, especially as you get larger, you need to have those rules easy enough for everyone to understand and to enforce somewhat equally, but then that it still becomes really subjective. And so there are all of these challenges. And so, so to get back to the point that I, I started to make uh, a few minutes ago was you know, we we built we're, we're building this game to teach to to sort of you know put people into the role of a trust and safety person, recognizing these challenges, and we took a, a very simplified the version we're building is has like all sorts of things to it, but we took a very simplified version of it and we brought it to a conference. This was a few years ago, pre-pandemic. We took it to a trust and safety conference where everybody in the audience basically worked in or studied trust and safety issues. And we, from the stage, presented, uh, I believe it was eight different scenarios, and we had them judge. Now, these are professionals who do this stuff for a living. And we had them vote on what to do with each of these different eight scenarios. And we did not get agreement on any of them. We had, we had, everybody had, we just had people vote on their phones, and they had four different choices for things that they could do. And on every one of the eight scenarios, at least someone in the audience voted for each of the four different options that, that they could do. You know, people differ on how to deal with every one of these things. And, you know, so you will have debates within trust and safety teams about how do you deal with these things. And, you know, and those are the experts. Think about how that feels to the people on the outside looking in. You know, it's hard to to understand the complexity and the subjectiveness of all of these decisions. And so, you know, I think that lots of people, and I believe this is true of Elon especially, you know, believe from the outside that because they see the end result of that, which looks unfair, that there is a better way, which is just like create clear rules and enforce them evenly. And it's only when you get to the the inside that you realize that that is 
absolutely impossible and ridiculous. And honestly, and I know, and I'm sure like some people listening to this will disagree and will yell and throw their phone or whatever they're using to listen to this. Like, honestly, of all of the social media sites out there, Twitter's trust and safety team was by far one of the most thoughtful, most careful. And this is the part that gets people mad, even though I swear to you that it is true. The most focused on supporting free speech out there. And and that seems mm-hmm. to get people really, really upset because they can point to this example or that example or that anecdote and say, but this, but point to this. Yes, there are all sorts of things that I disagreed with on, on particular choices that they've made. But on the whole, they had a clear set of principles and a clear focus. And it was very much on trying to support as much free speech as possible while still enabling the business to exist. And I think that some of what Elon is going through now is discovering that, but not being willing to admit that he was, he was wrong about what he saw as the problems on the site. Yeah. It seems like he thinks of it as a technical challenge, basically, you know, that uh, to use one of his favorite words, I think of the moment, hardcore, if you just go (laughs) hardcore mode and you just, just write a bunch of code then you can you can solve this problem, but it's it's not something you can ever code. Like human behavior is right. far too varied. Even if you write rules, people will always find the gaps in the rules, and there will always be gaps. But but let's let's take it back a, yeah. a little bit away from content moderation, just to what's going on with Elon, because I think there's a lot of cultural fixation on content moderation: who's banned from Twitter yeah, and who's yeah. not. You know, who's allowed to impersonate who? Is comedy legal? Question mark. Um, you know, Elon says it is, but then he banned people who were, you know, impersonating him. But that that gets a lot of play. There's a lot of talk about who's banned, who's not, what's legal, what's not to say, blah, blah, blah. A question one level up from that is, is that even really the problem with Twitter? Like people have thought Twitter has problems and Elon Musk thought it had problems. That's why he yeah. wanted to buy it before he didn't, before he did. But it's kind of commonly accepted that Twitter was struggling to some extent or that Twitter needs to be fixed. Is content moderation even the problem or is the problem like more boring stuff that like they can't roll out products very quickly or that they're, you know, stagnating or just something not not related to that? Yeah, I I think there were there were a bunch of problems. Clearly, you know, Twitter had struggled in in a lot of different ways and was, you know, certainly it was way behind most of the other social media sites out there and and had struggled in all sorts of ways and 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 over you know the past decade and a half or whatever it had gone through multiple CEOs it you know would cycle through product uh leads faster than spinal tap would cycle through drummers you know it was just like this constant churn and and they were not rolling out new products with any sort of regularity, though that had kind of changed over the past two years. They had finally gotten into a sort of rhythm for rolling out new features and products. By um, the way, I, I do just want to break in and say, product-wise, it still stuns me that Twitter invented TikTok and then just let it die. And a few <laughs> years later, actually, it was called Vine. And then a few years later, actual TikTok is now like this behemoth. Yeah. Um, but that, like, what could have been, you know? yeah. Um, I think they purchased Vine, but it was very early on, and then they really made Vine popular, and and they had it, and they killed it. So I, I mean, there are all sorts of problems with Twitter, and and I honestly think that, um, you know, Twitter's board was terrible. Uh, getting rid of that board, I think, was was 
important. And and I actually, and I've written this, like, I like the idea of taking Twitter private to get it out of the sort of quarterly drumbeat of Wall Street, because I think that did a lot of damage to how Twitter was dealing with things. Like, you know, for whatever his faults, and he certainly has faults, uh, Jack Dorsey had some some you know somewhat visionary ideas for what twitter could be but really was unable to get any of them going in part because the board kept saying no we need sh- basically short term focus on ramping up revenue and so you know there was there was a whole story which is now mostly forgotten which was like i can't remember exactly when it was maybe a year and a half or 2 years ago where the board basically gave him an ultimatum, which was he was going to get fired if he didn't hit certain revenue targets, like really, really stringent revenue targets um, that were way beyond what Twitter was doing at the time. And, you know, that put pressure on them to focus just on like, how do we better monetize Twitter, which is, you know, certainly something that, that any, you know, executive wants to be thinking about, but wasn't necessarily what is best in the long term for Twitter as a sustainable platform or for Twitter's users. And so I think that there, there were all sorts of problems there. And the idea of taking it private and having someone who is focused on like rapidly innovating and all of those things is really, really tempting. And if you had asked me before all of this, I would have said, yeah, like that is the path that Twitter really needs to, to go through to get back on, you know, uh, back in step and, and, and back to doing something. And so like from that framework, you could look at it and say, well, like, you know, Elon then should be the perfect setup. And this is kind of what Jack Dorsey even said was that, you know, you had to get it out of the public markets. You had to take it private. You needed someone who was singularly focused on it and had sort of a, you know, a a technical visionary focus on things and let them just run with it out of the eye of, of, you know, the quarterly markets. And so in theory, that would make a lot of sense. It's just that, that the way all of this came down and sort of, Elon's vision for it seems to be wrecking all of that possibility, you know, as, as we go yeah. through it. Well, let's let's talk about what's been happening, because the big question is, will Twitter die? I'm going to lay out a theory and I let you respond to it, because I, I suspect this is one area where we might disagree. I think we're fully on board. We've both been through content moderation hell and, and you know, kind of the theory of how that works. But... I'm skeptical that like Mastodon will become a thing, for instance. I think that Mastodon will never become a thing unless Twitter actually breaks as a website. Like content moderation won't do it. Like incumbency advantage is just too strong. Network effects are too strong. And nobody's going to actually leave for Mastodon until like Twitter's site actually starts like breaking. Like key features don't work or the website has downtime or like something like that. I I don't think like business, you know, if they fail to post profit, that will do it. Or if, you know, a culture war thing where everybody just gets mad at Elon. I'm I'm just very skeptical those things will actually happen. But I, I guess that raises the question, is Twitter going to break? Has Elon's behavior made it such that Twitter is actually at risk of the website having like critical failures? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm of mixed opinions on that. Uh, you know, I, I've seen reports where people have predicted, you know, it's going to fall over. And, you know, he got rid of all of the engineers who could keep the site running. And I, I don't know 
I mean, that could be true. Uh, you know, someone, someone I spoke to who was an ex Twitter employee said that there were, there were, whether it was good or not and recognizing it was not good, that there were certain load bearing employees at the company, which was a, a phrase that I thought was wonderful. Uh, and, and they're all gone. Um, which, you know, seems bad. And there are other, other, there've been articles sort of predicting that, you know, the site can coast for a while and it is built to be fairly resilient for, for obvious reasons. Um, but eventually errors and mistakes and problems are going to build up and, you know, and, and that could lead to some sort of catastrophic failure. And remember that there, it was during the uh, time in which Elon was trying to get out of the deal was also when the former, uh, you know, uh, chief privacy and security officer Mudge did released a whistleblowing report. And part of that was the claim that the, the site was extraordinarily fragile. And if a, a certain few things happened, the entire thing could collapse and there would be no real way to get it back up again. Um, I think then getting rid of tons of load bearing employees uh, could make that worse rather than better and could make it more difficult to fix and, and sort of get you out of that. But I, I don't know, honestly, you know, it's, it feels strange to sit outside and say, well, clearly the site's going to fall apart and break down. I have no idea. Um, you know, I, I, it's, I'm, I'm not going to make a clear prediction. I have seen in the last two weeks, a lot more errors, especially on the mobile app. Um, I'm getting errors all the time or tweets, not loading, um, things freezing, but I don't know how much of that is, you know, central and critical. So like, I, you know, I, I find it difficult to believe that the site is just going to like completely collapse and go down and, and never come back. Um, but you know, We'll see. I mean, you know, it's it's tough to think of other cases where that's actually happened, and so I assume that the the site was was designed to be resilient enough to handle that. So I, I'm not in the camp that thinks it's just magically going to break down. I could be wrong. I, you know, if you had asked me that six months ago, I would say like that's kind of an impossibility. I I would move up the percentage of it crashing permanently, you know, but I would still say it's a pretty low likelihood overall. Yeah, there's there's only two things that I think about when I think about like if there's going to be a major shift away from Twitter, what what's my paradigm for thinking right. about this? I think about MySpace to Facebook, which yep. was indeed kind of more of a just Facebook was a better site and and people liked it more and so there was this shift that happened. That was a pretty slow thing. Like MySpace stayed up for a long time, but also yeah. there was no there was no event where like MySpace died. It just kind of slowly declined and Facebook grew exponentially. The other one is Dig versus Reddit. <laughs> yes. And and that was actually, you know, Dig just implemented an entirely new and and for again, if there's zoomers listening, Dig was a site <laughs> way back in ye olden days of the of the internet. Not, it it's not even really that old, but it's like pre-2010. Yeah. So, um and it it was like a proto Reddit and they redesigned the site and like totally killed key features and and everybody hated it and reddit was a new thing and so people kind of left on mass from yeah. dig to reddit but that was an instance of them i would argue breaking their own site like they killed yeah. key features of the site just because um 
Yeah. And I, I'm not aware of any other big instances of like a social site just kind of dying in that way. Well, I, I mean, there have been. I, I mean, I think the, the the dig Reddit example is is a good one. And I mean, people who weren't there don't realize how big dig was. I mean, it was really big. And Reddit had been around for a little while and, and you know, people had mocked it as sort of a dig wannabe. And then dig just completely changed its model entirely basically because they were having trouble monetizing the the original version um, and just sent all the traffic to, to Reddit. But even like pre-MySpace, there was Friendster, right? So Friendster was sort of the first big social network. There were a few other social networks that predated it, but the first sort of like, you know, uh, pop culture popularity uh, social network was was Friendster. And what what made MySpace huge was that Friendster got too big too fast and did start breaking down and was incredibly slow and buggy and had certain limits on what you could do. And and then people just started saying, like, move to MySpace. MySpace works. It stays up. And, like, honestly, like, it's the littlest thing sometimes. The thing that got a whole bunch of people to switch from uh, Friendster to MySpace was the fact that MySpace would let you put your own background on the page, whereas Friendster, you had this sort of bland white and gray background. Uh, you know, these are the things that people forget about. But I remember so many people being like, "Go to MySpace. You can put your own background as ugly as as you want it to be." You know, um, and so that does happen. Uh, you know, I don't know if that will happen in in this case. I, you know, I, you know, I, I've been playing around a lot with Mastodon. Uh, over the last few weeks, and I'm not convinced that it's it's a Twitter replacement. Um, you know, I, I think there are, there are limitations on it. I think it's been really really interesting from like you know an observer perspective to see how much it's grown in the last two weeks, like massively, and how many of the conversations that I used to have on Twitter, I'm now having on Mastodon. There's a part of me, and I've, I've said this a few times, mainly on Mastodon. I still think of Mastodon as probably a kind of intermediary step between Twitter and then something else that I think will be more interesting. Ma- but- Mastodon is like, it's like Twitter, but moderated by Reddit mods or Discord mods or something like that. Yeah, but not quite. I mean, it's it's tough to, it's, you know, it, it's tough to find the right analogy. Um, there is that element of it. Uh, but I think as people are learning and, and as Mastodon is changing, like I think the influx itself of, of you know, um, you know, two million or so new people in the last couple of weeks, you know, it's changing the, the culture itself of Mastodon. And so, you know, like right now it's kind of funny because it's going through this culture clash of, you know, the old timers who have been there for five years and who are like, Partly like, oh, hey, people are finally recognizing Mastodon is here and it works. And then, you know, a lot of the other old timers were like, I kind of liked it as the quiet place, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's it's an interesting model in in that, you know, the moderation challenges are still there because moderation challenges will follow you everywhere. You can't not have those challenges, but they're tackling it with this very different model of, of federation where it's not quite you, you do have some aspects that are similar to to subreddit moderation that you know you have this like one big platform though it's not like reddit is a company so they have you know the 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 platform itself is managed by admins uh 
whereas Mastodon is just like this open source layer on ActivityPub, which is a open standard, which does a lot more things than just Mastodon. Um, and so you're seeing all these different things. And, and, and so each server, each Mastodon server does have its own moderators, but there's this really interesting dynamic that plays out because of the, the possibility of different Mastodon servers or communities or instances or whatever you want to call it to try and keep each other in line through saying like, if, if you keep allowing this to happen on your server, we are going to cut off your server completely. And that's created a really interesting moderation culture, which is very different than the moderation challenges of any centralized platform. And I'm sort of watching it really carefully because I can see where it's worked really well in some cases, and I could see it failing catastrophically in other cases. I don't think it's gotten to that point, but I can see where that could go really, really bad in, in terms of you know, enforcing a kind of group view that, you know, I think a lot of people would think is problematic or dangerous or, you know, you're not, kind of talking about filter bubbles basically here. Not, where... not exactly. And, and I, I, I avoid it that I'm, I'm sort of, there is that possibility. I don't think so. I think the whole like filter bubble concept is kind of overplayed. And I think it, it doesn't really apply to social media. Like we wrote about a, a study recently that kind of said like, you know, everybody who thinks like, oh, social media is all echo chambers and filter bubbles. Mm -hmm. Like that's yeah. totally been proven wrong. Like you're, you're exposed to much more like diverse content than like, you know, wherever the, you The live. problem with social media, like Twitter though, is that it's really good at making things you hate go viral. So yes. like I'm, <laughs> I'm exposed to Ben Shapiro because a lot of my followers like dunk on Ben Shapiro and they're not fans of his right or, you know, some, some crazy leftist council member in New York right. says that, you know, New York City's government should be a communist revolution, which is like, that's a thing that has actually happened. And of course, everybody who hates that, you know, dunks right. on that. And it's like you get, it, you're exposed to it, you know, whether or not it's an actually a, a good version of that argument. It's right. not necessary. It, you know, if, if you're getting all your politics from a combination of Ben Shapiro and the communists of New York, um, that's, <laughs> that's, something that you can do, I guess, but <laughs> right. I mean, it, it is like the nature of it is that like, you know, Twitter exposes you to the craziest viewpoints with a belief that like you kind of, and, and I'm guilty of this as anyone else is like that, you know, you need to dunk on it because like, this is crazy and you just, you need to call out the crazy, but, but that does often lead to people believing that the crazy ideas are much more widespread and much more widely supported than they might be. Uh, you know, so it's 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 a slight nuance difference from that that I'm worried about on, on Macedon, which is that you know you could get some of that, but I do fear that you you could get the sort of enforced viewpoint that you know does not allow for like important inquiry and and thought, and you know you could certainly see like if Macedon came about in the 1950s and people started talking about civil rights, how that might get blocked and not, not allowed. Right. You can see these kinds of things where there may be important discussions that need to be had that are very uncomfortable and that people do not want to have. And that a kind of, you know, threat of like Macedon defederation sort of setups and, and whatnot, you know, could, scare off any of that conversation mm -hmm. altogether. And, and the benefit of Twitter 
for better or for worse, is that those kind of things get seen. It, if something's yeah. controversial, it will go viral. Yeah. Um, and on Mastodon, you know, you can just shut off the controversial server that you don't want to see. And, and the ability to go viral is probably lessened, but, yes. but, but moving past that, because yeah. there's so much more to talk about. <laughs> um, like we could do three hours on this yeah. easy. One of the, you know, there's, there's so many things, God, there's, there's so many stories that have come out about Elon that, and Twitter that it's, it's hard to even keep track of them all. But I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, you know, do, do we think that Elon's business vision for Twitter will work? Because the obvious answer here is no. It's very easy to just say no. He's doing a bunch of really stupid stuff that's demonstrably stupid. You know, he fired the entire comms team. Apparently, apparently the whole payroll department just resigned. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know if that that was a thing that happened, but maybe it did. Because it's very confused that he sent out this email. First of all, he fired the company, half of it, you know, mm -hmm. 7,400 employees, and he let go of half of them. So we've got about 3,700 left. Then he sent out an email that said, you need to click this yes button to commit to being like super hardcore, late <laughs> night Twitter 2.0. Apparently, you know, there was a 24-hour deadline and only like 25% of people clicked that, which would be like 900 people left at the company. Now, I, I don't think there's only 900 people left. I think that they kind of walked that back a little bit. And now there's like 2,500 or 3,000 left. But you hear things like the whole payroll team has resigned and the whole you know, comms team has resigned and the whole accounting department has resigned. And all of those are very normal, cool things that you do when you are buying a business. <laughs> um, but so I, I guess what I'm saying here, I'm making the case that obviously this is all stupid. And like there are advertisers talking about we're pausing ads, not just because of the trust and safety stuff, but because we can't get anyone to answer an email. Like yeah. it's been a week, it's been two weeks. No one has answered our emails. There's technical glitches. So we're just halting all advertising. It's very easy to look at this and say, Elon is just screwing everything up. That, That's the easy case. Is there some sort of case for like, Elon is crazy like a fox and this is all actually going to work out super fine? You know, is he actually going to make up this revenue with Twitter Blue, uh, which is now suspended, by the way, and in debt? I think that happened in the last 12 hours, like indefinitely suspended. They're not sure when they're going to bring it back. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. Is there any I, I'm going to ask you to do that, actually. Can you make a case, even if you don't necessarily believe it fully? <laughs> sure. Could you make a case that Elon is crazy like a fox and this is actually going to work? OK, so, yeah, the, the sort of steel man case for, for what he's doing. So he does recognize that the company is is heavily reliant on advertisers and that creates its own problems. So he is very much looking for a way to get revenue that is not so dependent on advertisers. And I think that's a great idea. I think that's really, really smart. And I think Twitter was already doing that, um, perhaps not very well. They had this Twitter Blue program, subscriber program, which had about 100,000 subscribers. You know, I don't think that, that Twitter had done a very good job promoting it or explaining what the value was there. Um, and so, you know, I, I, think, I think it's smart to diversify your revenue streams. Um, I think it's a little strange to destroy the, the, the revenue stream that was keeping you in business while you do that, but that's, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm slipping back into the other, the other viewpoint, but, but it, you know, so I think building, um, a strong product that gets people to subscribe and, and, you know, convinces loyal Twitter users to pay directly for the service is, is a really good idea. And I think if, 
you know, some of the other stuff, I'm sure that the company had some bloat and they probably had employees who, you know, probably should move on. Uh, so going in and finding those and, and replacing them with people who are focused on shipping products and, and improving the, the service seems like a good idea. You know, I already talked earlier in the podcast about how getting out and away from the quarterly reporting demands, I think, was is a, an important thing for, for Twitter to, to sort of be able to refocus and, and, you know, follow a vision. I think having a singular leader who is presenting a vision, I think, is actually useful also, because I think a lot of people, a lot of employees at Twitter were never entirely sure where the company was heading and what they were trying to do. And some of the things they were working on seemed really strange and didn't quite fit with what they thought the vision of the company was. So having a clear vision, I'm not convinced that Elon has given people a clear vision yet, but in theory, having a clear vision that everybody can follow and everybody believes in, I think is is probably a good idea. So all of those things combined, I think, you know, could be, uh, you know, a good way to reset Twitter and and to move it forward, you know. But I I think if you know, having said all that, I'm I'm going to shift gears now a little bit. <laughs> having said all that, you know, I think the way that one would normally do that is to come in and spend three to six months, maybe figuring out what the company is actually doing, who is actually there, what they are actually doing, how important they are, how everything works, to understand which things made sense to change, what vision actually does make sense, how to implement that vision, who to keep, who to have lead that vision, who to, you know, and and who to get rid of and what products to close down and things like that. And, you know, instead, we had a guy who, you know, two weeks before was trying everything possible not to buy Twitter, come in and on day one, just start firing people when, you know, in the, the very same month, he was arguing in court that he should not have anything to do with Twitter. And yeah. then suddenly thinks he knows, you know, who to fire and which products that, that, to focus that, on. That's what makes it so clear that like, he kind of doesn't know what he's doing is he, he didn't want to be doing this. Yeah. Um, and even if you think Elon's a very smart guy, and I think it would be, very silly to argue otherwise, you know, the guy founded like what, three different billion dollar, multi-billion dollar companies. Um, well, some, like, some people will argue whether he founded them or was brought in and named yeah, himself I mean, founder, fair, but that's but like, okay. Yes. Yeah. That, I'm just pointing out cause I know people get really angry about that. So. Yeah, I, but I mean like you don't end up in that act, yeah. position by accident three times. Like no. you, know, you can do once, what is that saying? Like once is happenstance, two is a coincidence, three is a pattern or something like that. So <laughs> yeah. Elon's really smart, but it almost feels like he's trying to like graft Tesla's hardcore culture onto Twitter. And like inertia is a really powerful force yeah. and it's just, you can't do that. And you know, you fire half the people and then, a day later, you're begging some of them to come back because it turns out that uh, you oh the, we actually needed some of those people. And I almost feel like we should do this as like a little segment. Like, what are the top three stupidest things that have happened at Twitter? Like, Elon asks people to come manually review code with him as right. though the CEO of a company has time to review like the thousands of systems that, you know, of code that, that Twitter has. And you ever watch Arrested Development? Yes. You know that scene where Lucille, who's the rich, out-of-touch person for the listeners, if you don't know, she like looks at Michael and she's like, it's a banana, Michael. What <laughs> right. could it cost? $10? <laughs> and yeah. I, I feel like that's Elon with code. He's like, 
how much code could Twitter have? Like a thousand lines? Right, you know, like, right. I don't know, man. Like, what, if you had to come up with like a top three list of like, what are the oh, dumbest gosh. things that have happened in the last two weeks at Twitter? Well, what would be top of your list? Oh, my For me, gosh. it would be the code review. Like, just the yeah. idea that the CEO is going to sit there with a hundred different engineers and manually review code with them is unbelievably funny to me. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it was so weird too. And I'll get to the, the, the specific question, but they, um, you know, cause like he came in, it was day one where he asked every engineer to print out like highlights from their last 30 days of, of code commits or something like that. And they had to print it out and then, and they were going to bring them to Elon. It's like you have thousands of engineers going to be bringing thousands of pages of code to Elon. Like, is this, this is crazy. And then like an hour later, they like cancel that. And they're like, please shred. If you already printed it out, please shred it. And now the latest thing is that every engineer has to email Elon every Friday with what code, with code samples, from the week, though they set up a separate email box for him for the, for the code samples, because otherwise his inbox would be completely useless. But you know, it, it's weird. It's like, does does he not does he not understand how GitHub works? And like, you can go look at code without having people like, you know, cut and paste it into an email or 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 whatever. There's all sorts of things. But yeah, like, oh gosh, you know, in terms of the the stupidest things. I mean, I think that's got to be up there. Um, you know, I still think, you know, just firing half the company less than a week after he took over without having any sense of who is actually important and who is not, um, I, I think is is just painfully stupid. And that led to them then trying Move to hire, fast. hire back. Break things. Yeah. That's all we do. Yeah. I, I think... Um, Gosh, you know, like trying to rush out the Twitter blue product. Um, like I understood, you know, I understood the thinking behind it. I understand again, like having more subscription revenue is good, but like everything about that was, was dumb and bad. And the framing of it was bad. Like, you know, merging it with the verification, um, it was just, you know, ridiculous. It was based on this weird myth that that some people, that Elon and some people in his circle seem to believe that like the the blue check itself has value. And, you know, and I think to the extent that it does, and I'm I, I think for some people it might, but like, I don't know, I think for most people it it doesn't. Um you know, to the extent that it did, it was because it was special and not because you can buy it for eight bucks, right? <laughs> you know. And so like not, and, and then saying like, we have to come up with this and we have to release it in a week. Like he told the team working on it, like it had to be released within a week or they would be fired, which is like, I understand why some people might think that's a motivating factor, but like I've worked with lots of engineers and I don't think that's really a motivating factor. Um, I think that's, you know, and, and then even, you know, the way that the, the Twitter blue product was rolled out people told him that it would be abused. They warned specifically of the impersonation factor and he dismissed them. And then of course it happened and it created all sorts of problems and it caused more advertisers to bail on the platform. And then they had to shut it down a day after they launched it. And then he keeps I now. I will say that the content on Twitter right now, because of all this that's happening, the content on Twitter has never been better. I, I don't think <laughs> yeah. it is. It, somebody goes and impersonates Eli Lilly and says all insulin is free now, and just yes. 
oh my god, just the shit storm that happened from that. Yeah. Or like, the, I think somebody impersonated Lockheed, Mar- Lockheed yes. Martin and said, we're not going to sell arms to Saudi Arabia yes. anymore. And like nearly caused an international incident. And and you, you know what's funny to me, as, as we talk through all these things, how many things, again, like we're speed running, how do you screw up a company and yeah. then and learn how to manage a company? Because so many of them are immediately walked back. Yeah. You have Twitter Blue, which was rolled out and now has been canceled and is indefinitely postponed until they can figure out the impersonation thing. You have the, you know, comedy is legal tweet. Right. Um, but then, and then he immediately suspends like really prominent accounts for impersonating him. Right. You have the, you know, he fires a bunch of people and then begs them to come back. You have the whole thing about the content. We're, we're not going to re- undo any bans until we have convened our content moderation council. Right. A, a week later, he has put up a poll that just says, should I bring back Trump? Power to the people. You yes. know, with some, what, what is the Latin phrase that he used? Vox populi, vox dei. Oh, God. Barf. <laughs> yes. Jesus. The, vo- the voice of the people is the voice of God, which right. again, and lots of people have been pointing this out, you know, originally comes from a, a letter to Charlemagne, uh, basically saying the, the, the extended version is effectively like, the people who say that the voice of the people is the voice of God are wrong because the voice of the people is often prone to madness. You know, <laughs> it's like, well, that fits. And so, I mean, I think like that last example, and, and it, I it ro- also just fits his his whole like Elon's got this weird like faux intellectual vibe where he, yeah. he desperately wants to be thought of as like this thought leader. And the yeah. thing is, he can build it. Like he doesn't need this. He can build companies. He's done oh, yeah. a lot of genuinely incredible shit totally, but he totally. he wants to be considered like a great poster and yeah. i just don't think he is like so somebody said that um it's like the most coherent thing i've ever seen donald trump is a poster elon musk is a reply guy and i can't <laughs> i can't explain this but i feel it in my soul that it's correct yeah yeah i mean it's funny the the whole like i heard from from i heard from multiple people uh, inside twitter who said that he's been using that Vox Populi, Vox Day line, like in meetings and like every meeting and he thinks it makes him sound cool. But, um, you know, I, to finish the thought going back, like, I think that poll is, is, you know, that, that third one on the list of the dumbest decisions that, that he's made. And, and I wrote a thing about this because some people got mad at me because when I, I sort of called it out, I don't think that the decision to bring back Trump is, is the problem. I, I think that there are reasonable arguments both for and against whether or not Trump should be on the platform. And I think you can have that discussion. And and I think that, you know, any any social media platform can justify either decision, whether to, to kick him off or or to, to have him on the platform. Um and, and so there there are, I think, reasonable arguments in both directions. The issue that I had was the idea that this is the type of thing that should be decided by a poll. And, you know, and so some people are like, but it's democracy, right? I've seen that. It's like, well, one, like, you don't have democracy for decisions that companies make. That's just silly. Second, it's not democracy. Like, you know, democracy has a whole bunch of factors and and features to it that are not like one dude puts up a poll and like just the people who are following that dude are the ones who see the poll and vote on it. You know, and especially not on a site where the same guy 
like just weeks earlier was complaining was dominated by bots and fake people and then even claimed during the poll that bots were voting in the poll that's not democracy either right you know the whole thing the whole idea that this is some sort of like actual setup for a democratic decision making process doesn't make any sense at all it's just not how you do how you do decision making on this scale. And this gets back to the whole like content moderation thing where there are all sorts of challenges and all sorts of reasons and all sorts of context that are really, really important to decision-making and putting up a simple yes or no poll gets at none of that nuance and none of that understanding and none of that, you know, figuring out like a clear philosophical policy reason for why we are doing what we are doing. It's just pure entertainment, which, again, seems to be the thing that he is most focused on setting up the site to, to be for. So we've got just a little bit of time left. And one thing that I thought would be fun to do is to go through some questions. I've opened up the prediction market, uh, Metaculus. <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But Metaculus has a couple questions about what might happen with Twitter in the future. And I'd just love to get your kind of over under here. Um, in terms of will Twitter actually die? You know, is Twitter <laughs> going to, you know, go bankrupt, you know, on some, you know, time frame? Um, so the first question on Metaculus, will Twitter experience an outage of greater than six hours before mid-2023? And right now they have this rated as a 30% chance. Would, would you take over or under 30% Twitter will have an outage of greater than six hours before mid-2023? I would I would go over. I wouldn't go much over, but I would go over because if if you had just asked me a percentage, I would have said around thirty five percent likelihood. So I would go interesting take over. My, my instinct is under, and I have no basis for this. By the way, I I am not I have no inside knowledge. I just uh, like one of my life rules is that inertia is really powerful, yeah. and don't like don't underestimate that things rarely change. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, and and, and I, I agree with that. And I that's why I, I think it's less than 50%. I, I, I think that, like, you know, if you were just doing a straight yes or no, I would say no. But I do think that there's enough, like, serious infrastructure and enough people who understand how that infrastructure works have left and enough people who I know who work there, perhaps very recently, have made it clear that, like, there are things that break all the time and sometimes they're really serious and you need certain people there to get those things working. And the possibility that they lead to a cascade failure is very real. You know, if, if you had asked me six months ago, I would have said, you know, the chances of that happening were, you know, minuscule, you know, well less than 1%. But I, I would now put it around 35%. Okay, so here's uh, another one from Metaculus. The background here is that obviously Elon Musk bought Twitter on October 27th, and shortly after he did, credit rating agency Moody's downgraded Twitter's corporate credit rating two steps. They went from B1 to BA2. They cited governance risk. This is the credit rating agency Moody's. The question asks, will they be downgraded to a C credit rating before mid-2023? This is essentially a question about their financial health. Um, and the community prediction is 50% over under. Oh man, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I, I don't know enough about like the bond rating market to, to say for sure, but I'll take the over, you know, again, I'm probably pretty close to that 50%. 
if if you ask me honestly, but I'll, I'll take the over again. And, and my argument here is that, you know, one, like the debt load that the company has taken on is pretty astronomical, right? And and this is a choice, right? I mean, Musk could have spent more money up front and lowered the debt load. He chose to, you know, turn it into a leverage buyout effectively and and put 13 billion of the 44 billion that he spent uh, as a loan that the banks are now sitting on. Uh, and that comes with it, the $1 billion interest payments, which is way more free cash flow than the company has had. And so that just puts the company in this really, really difficult spot. And then he's been doing all of these things and managing the company in a way that is just is is not going to make that debt you know, sellable to, to anyone and isn't doing anything to increase the revenue and is acting in this very erratic fashion that I think, you know, puts tremendous risk. And that's not even getting it. We haven't even discussed this. I'm realizing it's kind of crazy. Uh, by the way, I should note, I'm really bad at lightning rounds because I don't, I don't give lightning answers, <laughs> but, but <laughs> the, 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 we haven't even discussed the regulatory risk that he yeah, has. Yeah, the FTC and the, the e, not just the FTC, the EU might yes. be coming after them. Yeah. Yeah. But both of which are very, very serious and both of which could be really, really problematic. You know, with the FTC, you know, Twitter has a consent decree that they originally signed in 2011 for, for doing things. And, and it has requirements about launching new products and, and other, you know, uh, other filing things that they need to do that they, it appears have not been doing, especially with like the launch of Twitter blue. It does not appear that they complied with the, the FTC consent decree. And in fact, I'm, you know, uh, you know, three top privacy and security executives all resigned on the same day. And the implication was, I have no insight into whether or not this is true or not, but the implication was they recognized that they, their heads were on the line because Part of the FTC consent decree is that there's like potentially criminal uh, liability for executives, uh, you know, who are the privacy and security executives. And we've seen that play out where Uber, Uber's former chief security officer just got found guilty in a criminal case over over uh, a data breach that he tried to hide at Uber. So there's like real like criminal risk and and you know the three people who were most likely to face that risk all resigned on the same day which that's, says something that's an awesome sign <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know given the the regulatory risk as well as everything else i could definitely see the the rating on those bonds drop all right one more before we get to our final question sure so this will be our final lightning round question Donald Trump's return on Twitter. He is he is legalized now. Donald Trump has been freed. Will at real Donald Trump tweet in 2022? 60% is the current rate on manifold <laughs> markets. Would you take over under 60%? In 2022, so in the next month and a half, basically. Whew. Man, I'll take the under on that one. But again, I'm I'm probably pretty close on that. You know... I mean, obviously now he has his own uh, social media site that competes with Twitter in some sense. Um, and, and there yeah. are rumors that he's like legally obligated to stay it's, there. It's not a rumor. It is It is in SEC filings. And I, oh, okay. I dug, dug it up and found it. I found the contract. a hard-nosed reporter here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so it says that um, he signed a deal in, 2020, in December of 2021, which lasts for 18 months, 
that requires him to exclusively post content to Truth Social, but there's a six-hour exclusive. So after six hours, he can post content to other sites. And there are a few exceptions around political content, um, which he might view broadly. Donald Trump is not exactly known for living up to the contracts that he signs. So even though that is in place, I'm not sure that will stop him. You know, so far he's shown no inclination. I kind of, there's a part of me that thinks like he wouldn't do it for now. I think that as his campaign for 2024 ramps up, he's going to decide he needs to. So I would say that he will tweet again, but not in 2022, that it'll show up in 2023 at some point. That is so interesting because they actually have a question. Manifold Markets has two questions. They have it rated as about 60% that real Donald Trump will tweet in 2022, but they have it at 80% that he will tweet in 2023. (laughs) So I think you're in line with the market here. Excellent. Um, all right, so it's it's about time now to wrap things up. We're going to ask the traditional question that we always end this podcast on, and that is, where should people go to learn more? If they're interested in uh, Elon's takeover of Twitter, Twitter as a business, just the general ideas about content moderation, and, and they want to explore these ideas, what should they do? This could be someone to follow on Twitter or Mastodon, I guess, now, um, <laughs> if, if that's going to be a thing. It could be a blog. It could be a book. It can be anything. I'll start out by recommending a few things. If you're listening to this on the Neoliberal Podcast feed and you like this, please also give the Tech Dirt podcast a listen. There's a lot of great content there. The two writers who have helped me understand this case the best are Mike over at Tech Dirt, who we're talking to today, and then also Matt Levine who does money stuff and who was incredible walking through the legal saga of him trying to uh, get out of buying it. Matt has now got his hands full with FTX, but um, <laughs> but b- both Mike Masnick and Matt Levine have been great on this. I'll, I'll toss it over to you now, Mike. When people just think about these ideas in general, what what would you recommend? Yeah. And, and, and obviously I'll throw out a plug for, for people who are listening to this on the Tector feed to, to, to listen to the neoliberal podcast as well. There's lots of very interesting discussions in, in terms of this, um, you know, obviously I'm writing a a bunch of stuff about it on Tector. So you can, you can follow that. Um, really interesting people covering this stuff, uh, on the legal side has been really fascinating is Chancery Daily. Um, which Chancery Daily is a publication that's been around for a decade um, that covers the Chancery Court <laughs> in Delaware, uh, the Delaware Court of Chancery. You're not allowed to call it the Delaware Chancery Court. It's the, well, anyways, whatever. They're very, very particular. But <laughs> um, was covering the case involving, uh, you know, trying to force must to comply with the the deal that that he did and just is really really good at explaining in great detail um how you know how these cases are playing out and now since the deal concluded and that 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 trial never actually happened um has still been doing really good coverage of a lot of the legal implications for Elon and Twitter uh and they uh, you know, the, their actual magazine is very expensive and it's really designed for like lawyers who, who practice in the, the court of chancery, but 
they are tweeting and now they have moved to Mastodon as well. So they're doing stuff on Mastodon and you can just go and search for Chancery Daily. Um, and, um, and they also have set up a Substack, which they have a, a lower cost Substack for people who want to go a little bit deeper. And I think that's been really interesting on the legal side of things. Um, in terms of other people covering all this, there have been there have been a lot of really interesting and thought provoking um, folks. I agree, Matt Levine's analysis of all of this has been fantastic, um, and I think I think some of this has also created a lot of interest in general on better understanding content moderation issues. And so I think there are some really interesting people talking about that in in general um, and. I will give a, a shout out to Kate Klonick, um, who's a professor uh, who is sort of, you know, one of the world's foremost experts in sort of content moderation issues. Um, and her work has been really, really fascinating. And so I would recommend that. And then finally, I'll point to, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier that we were building a, a, a game, a trust and safety game to help people understand these issues. We've been doing a lot of different game related stuff. We found that games are a really excellent tool for, for getting people to understand really complex ideas, especially around the sort of tech and policy space. Um, and so if you do a search on Copia Gaming, just go to Google and Copia Gaming, it'll take you to a page that has a list of the games that we've already put out, which includes a, a startup policy web-based game that you can just play in the web. And that has some content moderation aspects too. It's got a lot more than that, but it's kind of a quick, fun example where you can put yourself in the role of running a startup and having to face, you know, the FTC knocking at your door and content moderation challenges and, uh, you know, India trying to ban your site and all sorts of fun, fun little challenges like that. So that that's called startup trail. You can do, do a search on that and, and find that. And that's where we'll also have details about our, uh, trust and safety game when we finally get around to releasing it. All right. Lots of good stuff there. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes. Um, I mean, I, I will see you guys all on Twitter. I'm, I'm keeping an eye. Uh, our kind of motto within our group, we're, we're basically looking at this like we're going to stay on Twitter until it's clear Twitter is broken. And yeah. then at that point, we might move. But, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. I do think it's it's great content for now. It's all up in the air. So we'll see. Um I do want to thank uh, Mike Masnick for being here. Mike, it's always a, a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, yeah. No, this is great. Lots of fun stuff to talk about. We could have gone for, for much longer, but... Uh, it, it may end up that we have to do this again in two weeks because another, right. another 20 things have happened. But, yes, yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks one more time, Mike. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Five, to grab a shovel and think of the tap. Five, if we don't stand up to them, someone will get five.